0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and this morning does begin a a new sermon series. I think we're going to, I'm going to preach about 12 sermons from 1 Thessalonians. And so we'll start this morning, of course, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read in your hearing verses 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. We read Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy That he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats, brothers and sisters. The question before us this morning is this. How do we measure faithfulness? And specifically, I'm thinking here of a local church. How do you measure a church's faithfulness? And we may be tempted to answer that question in a multitude of ways. Perhaps we think maybe a a big budget or slick marketing or or maybe a, a dynamic children's ministry perhaps we think faithfulness equals a a large auditorium filled with with warm bodies, or or perhaps a a rocking band playing a killer set up front. I assure you, such answers and more abound. So how is it, though, that we get our heads and hearts around this? Especially because I trust that we desire to be a faithful church, right? Right? So what does a healthy and thriving and faithful church look like, particularly in the midst of adversity and pressure from a hostile world? And I think that in a lot of ways, 1 Thessalonians answers that question. Now real quick, let me just say that what is in front of us this morning, what we call First Thessalonians, is actually a letter. I should add, most of the books that make up the New Testament are letters. So whether we are talking about Paul or Peter or John or James, almost all of these are letters, and they are letters written to a specific local church. And so First Thessalonians is Paul's first letter that we have to this church in Thessalonica. If you want to learn more about how this church came to be, then I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 17 this afternoon. For now, let me just give you a couple of the highlights. Paul and his team, and and you can see several of his colleagues mentioned in verse 1, you have Silvanus or Silas, Same person. I know it it trips us up, but but you have Sylvanus and you have Paul's beloved protege, the young Timothy. And what we are told is that they reached this city of Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary trip. Luke's record, again found in Acts 17, reveals that Paul and his team did not spend long in this particular place, but they used their time wisely. And so they labored diligently among the Thessalonians, preaching the gospel and making disciples. The result was the birth of this particular church. Speaking of this church, we don't know a lot about its makeup. But what we do know is this. We know that they possessed no political power, that they had scant financial resources, and that they were hardly a majority in the city, at least numerically speaking. On top of that, they experienced pretty intense suffering for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the key. Despite all of this, they were a faithful church. An outpost for the kingdom of God in a dark and dying world. So what I want to do again this morning as we begin this new sermon series through 1 Thessalonians is I want us to sort of step back a little bit. This morning we're just going to dip our toe into this water and and wade out into the refreshing waters of 1 Thessalonians. And as we do, I want us to wrestle with that question. What does this passage revealed to us about a faithful church. And what I want you to see is that there are three realities or three evidences of a faithful congregation. The first is this, though this congregation in Thessalonica was small and weak, they were also adored and appointed by God. Verse 4 reveals the glorious truth. We read there, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. You hear that? Sometimes we'll ask questions about, well, what is the church? And that's a fair enough question. But but this is one of those opportunities where, where we can ask the question, well, what is a church from God the Father's perspective? And verse 4 answers, the church is loved by God, and the church belongs to God. The church is loved by God because the passage says loved by God, and it belongs to God because we are told that the church is a, a chosen instrument or it's been elected by God. This language of loved by God and chosen by God, this is drawing upon rich and prominent language from the Old Testament where God's affection was expressed for Israel, the Old Covenant people. Well, the Apostle Paul here, what he is doing is he is taking those titles and those promises from the Old Testament, and he is applying them to the church, to the New Covenant people of God. Letting us know that the Father has set His love upon us. That, that God has determined from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people from the mass of sinful and fallen humanity and elect people who would be the objects of His love and grace. This is what we are. We are brands plucked from the fire. You see, this was true of the saints in Thessalonica, and it is equally true of us. We could very well assert our own name, our own church in verse 4. Redeeming grace is loved by God. And God, verse 4, has chosen us. And of course, a moment's reflection will immediately reveal if this was not the way, if this was not God's doing, if God did not adore us and God did not appoint us, then know this, there would be no church. Make no mistake about it. It is God's sovereign and electing love that gives birth to the church. Don't think of the elect or the church as if God is somehow just sort of rolling the dice to see what shakes out. Don't think for a moment that God is up in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping beyond hope that maybe just one day a a church will pop into existence. As if God is sort of passively waiting for something to happen. If any of this was left up to us, then we would simply carry on in our sin all the way to the grave. You have to see, Christian, and it is quite humbling indeed to see it, that our very existence as Christians and our very existence as a church is the result of God's singular work of love And grace. You see, the scriptures tell us that God loves us. And so we then in turn love him. That God actually chose us. And so that we in turn choose him. This whole work. Whether we want to we want to put labels on it like redemption or, or salvation or election. The point is that it all starts with God, and it is sustained by God, and it exists for God. That's true of you. It's true of your family. That's true of this congregation. Now, given all of this, you might very well ask the question, okay, fair enough, pastor, but how do I know if I am elect? How do I know if I'm actually adored by God and appointed by God? And that is a great question. And really it brings us to the second wonderful truth that Paul highlights regarding a faithful church. Here it is. The people of God trust and treasure the gospel. Let me say that again. The people of God trust and and treasure the gospel. We'll put more meat on those bones in a sec, but for now, let me just say this. Here's how you know you are elect. Are you ready? Have you embraced Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel? Have you repented of your sin and have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, then you can know that you are adored by God and appointed by God. In in other words, you don't need to go rummaging through the deep recesses of your heart in search for something like perfect faith or sinless motives. You're not going to find them. Neither should you seek to peer into God's sovereign and secret will as if you could somehow discover infallibly the mind of God. Not only is that an exercise in futility, but God flatly tells us, don't do that. For all the mystery that plagues so many Christian minds, here's what you need to know. The proof of your election is found in what? Your conversion. Right? Are you a Christian? Have you seen your sin for what it is? And have you fled to Jesus Christ for forgiveness? If so, then the Bible says you are numbered among the elect. Look at how Paul connects it all. In verse 4, he asserts, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Okay, but, but slow down, Paul. How do we know this? Verse 5 answers. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Notice redeeming grace. Evidence of your election is found in what? One's response to The gospel. So is the gospel received or rejected? Is it believed or banished? Is it loved or loathed? Is it trusted and treasured or is it despised and detested? You see, if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. Your entire eternal estate is wrapped up in what you do with the gospel what you do with Jesus Christ. Let's see how Paul fleshes this out. You'll notice in verse 4 that the gospel came to them, we are told, in word. Well, the idea of the gospel coming to them in word is a clear reference to the proclamation of the gospel. And of course, this is how the word always goes forth, right? The the life, death, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, He who is the Savior of the world. This is a message that has been entrusted to the church and must be proclaimed by the church. And as this message was proclaimed among the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17, some embraced it. But Paul says more, doesn't he? The same gospel message we are told also came in power. This is probably, speaking of the miracles wrought by the Spirit of God in their midst through the apostles. You need to remember that At this unique point in redemptive history, God had determined to authenticate His message and to authenticate His messengers by miracles. And of course, you can read about them in Acts uh, Acts chapter 17 in particular, but really the whole book of Acts, right? The point is that as the gospel went forward in word, God also, and this is Hebrews 2.4, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Paul adds in verse 5 that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and, we are told, in the Holy Spirit. Most likely, what Paul has in mind here is what we would call the Spirit's work of regeneration or new life. That is to say, that in and through the, the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit does a work in the life of the elect. What is that work? Well, there is conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit calls. The Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit converts. That's how Christians are born again, right? Brother and sister, that's how you were born again. Christ was preached, and the Holy Spirit birthed you into God's kingdom. And I will be the first to concede that this miracle of regeneration, this work of new life that the Holy Spirit does, it is a sovereign work of God, but it is also a deeply mysterious work of God. It's one that we can't always explain or or always pinpoint. But it is a work, the Scriptures tell us, whereby our heart of stone is taken out, and we are given a new heart of flesh. And don't let that language confuse you, sort of heart of flesh, right? We, sometimes I think if, if we're confined sort of to the New Testament or to the Apostle Paul in particular, we might think flesh and it immediately sort of has negative connotations, right? But that, that's not what the prophets are talking about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The heart of flesh is contrasted with a heart of stone. So the heart of stone is is dead. It's inanimate. It's it's lifeless. You can't do anything with it. But the heart of flesh is alive. It's soft. It's pliable. And so what the the scriptures teach us is that a heart of flesh, the way that it's different from a heart of stone, is that the heart of flesh is one that sees our sins for what it is a heart of flesh is one that does something that it's never done before and that is it actually delights in the law of God and a heart of flesh is one that runs makes a beeline throws caution to the wind and is dead set on running to Jesus because a heart of flesh knows that Jesus is the only source of pardon and peace Might be helpful, maybe not. Might be helpful to think of it in, in sort of Trinitarian terms. As we're thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit here in the miracle of regeneration, we could we could zoom out and, and we could think of the Father as the architect of redemption. This is something that takes place before the foundation of the world. The Son of God then accomplishes redemption on that bloody cross some two thousand years ago? And then the Holy Spirit of God applies that redemption in our personal lives. And He does so again by enlightening our minds, opening our eyes, and loosing our tongues, and unstopping our ears, and transforming our wills. Finally, Paul mentions in the middle of verse 5, that this same gospel comes with full conviction. Full conviction. In other words, when those in Thessalonica heard the gospel, they were utterly convinced of its truthfulness. They staked their lives on it. They set their face to follow Jesus, and they would settle for nothing less than Jesus. Here's the point, beloved. Beloved. What is described here in verse 5, what we see is again what we and the Bible call conversion. The word of God goes forth and the Holy Spirit plants the seed of that word deep into the soil of the elect's heart and the fruit of new life springs up. Or to say it another way, The people of God trust and treasure the gospel. And here's the connection. That trusting and treasuring of the gospel is evidence that you are adored and appointed by God. Now you will recall, beloved, that we are looking at one of the New Testament's earliest letters. And we're trying to ask ourselves, well, what does this early letter, what does First Thessalonians reveal about the church and her faithfulness? And I said our passage makes known three wonderful truths. First, the people of God are adored and appointed by God. Second, the people of God trust and treasure the gospel. And third now, the people of God grow in Grace. We grow in grace. And if you step back from our passage just a little bit, you can quickly see what this growth growth of grace looks like. What are the marks of grace in our passage? Well, look at at Paul's prayer for them. We're told that he gives thanks for them, beginning of verse 2, remembering before our God and Father, verse 3, Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. That church is what it looks like to grow in grace. The fruit born on the tree of gospel grace is what? Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope or maybe I can, I can put it this way, in an effort to try and help sort of tie this passage together. This may be helpful or not. Bear with me. Verse 4 tells us this church is adored and appointed by God. The evidence of this is in verse 5, how they trusted and treasured the gospel. Now here's, here's how we'll fit the last puzzle piece in. Verse 3 then is the effects of election, maybe think of it this way: we can think of election is the, is the tree trunk, right? And that's verse four. And the evidence of election is the branches, verse five. And then the effects of election is the fruit on those branches, verse three. And that fruit is their growth and grace. Let's look at this fruit a bit more closely. Verse 3 speaks first of their work of faith. Or perhaps better put, their faith which produces works. Now I realize as Reformed Christians, our instinct might be to react against such a statement. But there's no need to do so. Works of faith, or again, works produced by faith, is nothing that any of us should shake our head at. And that's because Paul is not saying, and nor am I saying, that our works save us. Let's be, like, super abundantly clear. They don't. It is impossible. You will never burn enough, enough calories on the, the spiritual treadmill to earn your way to heaven. That will never, ever happen. The only way that you'll ever be forgiven your sins, welcomed into God's family, and declared right in God's sight, is solely on account of Christ and Christ alone. We cannot waver here. And we cannot waver here because Scripture does not waver here. Salvation has always been and will always be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. Christ alone. For example, Titus 3.5 testifies. We are told that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Galatians 2.16 ends. We know. This is something the apostle says. It's like, this is training wheels. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. In other words, our sins are not forgiven and we are not declared righteous in God's sight by our own doing, by by our works of the law, by us. But, Galatians 2.16 continues, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith, we are told, Saves. And the only reason that faith saves is because faith lays hold of Christ and His works, which justify us. Or consider, perhaps more famously, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the apostle goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a long way to say this. Don't read 1 Thessalonians 1-3's work of faith and think, okay, what Paul is teaching here is justification by faith plus lots of works. Remember, what we are talking about here is the fruit of faith. What what Paul is celebrating in prayer here is the fact that this church is increasing in its fruitfulness and obedience to God's commands. And of course, beloved, the same should be true of us. Good and sound and right and healthy faith will produce the fruit of faith, which is good works, just like a good and sound and right and healthy tree produces good apples. So yes, we are most certainly not saved by works, but you'd better believe we are certainly saved to works. And one of the effects of our election and conversion is that our lives will be transformed. That's really what Paul is driving at here. Let's look at another fruit of our growth in grace. Paul speaks of their labor of love in the middle of verse 3. And I don't know about you, but when I read language of labor of love, I can't help but think of Jesus' own words from John 13 when he told his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And and even a cursory reading of 1 Thessalonians will reveal that this church here in Thessalonica excelled in love. They most certainly loved one another. You get that from 1 Thessalonians 3.12. Likewise, they loved their pastors for shepherding them. 1 Thessalonians 5:13. On top of that, they loved other Christians from different congregations, even those who didn't cross every t and dot every i the exact same way that they did. 1 Thessalonians 4:9. If all that wasn't enough, they even loved their unbelieving family and neighbors and coworkers. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. Redeeming grace, this is a congregation that excelled in love. And so should we. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that any of this is easy. Just as Christians do not just sort of passively fall into holiness, neither do we just sort of fall into loving others, especially those who tend to be different from us. Perhaps we can be honest. Love takes work. For some of us, some of us are harder to love than others of us. Our passage says that this is a labor of love with the emphasis being on labor. This is true of our our spouse, this is true of our children, and this is true even of our church. Whether we're talking about our wife or our kids or our local church, the the fact is there comes a point in time when the butterflies fade, when when they're no longer occupying your stomach region, and you quickly learn in those moments that love and, and faithfulness and commitment, you know what? It takes work. In fact, love in the face of that sort of work is a glorious mark of Christian maturity and virtue. Speaking of how difficult this love can be, again, notice that both love and faith here in verse 3, as well as hope, they're all qualified, aren't they? faith for example is a work of faith but but love has even has an even stronger qualifier paul says it's a labor of love and and in paul's greek here labor is a stronger word than work for faith to be precise paul's use of labor here in the original language it stresses an intense and an arduous work It's the idea today that we might say, this requires blood and sweat and tears. The point is, love is not easy, especially for selfish creatures like you and me. But even though it is not easy, it is something that we are called to. And we are called to this love because Christ first loved us. Let us not forget that He demonstrated His labor of love for us by dying to Himself, both figuratively and quite literally. And as Christians, of course, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Master. We are called then to demonstrate our labor of love as we seek to To care and encourage and walk alongside each other. Now, the final fruit of grace that Paul mentions is toward the end of verse 3. Paul calls it steadfastness of hope. Christian, let me just ask you quickly what is hope? Is hope just crossing your fingers? Is biblical hope the same as hoping it will snow on Christmas morning? You know, just sort of wishful thinking. No. Someone's catechizing their children around here. Hope, biblically speaking, is a measure of confidence. We can say it this way. For the Christian, hope is a confident expectation that the future is in God's hands. And that He is working all things for our good. And this is what you see among the Thessalonians. Despite the hardships that they faced, we'll get into those. And the the hostility that they received from the world, we'll get into that as well. Not to mention the reality of their own sin when they look in the mirror. This was a church that inhaled and exhaled hope. You see, they weren't just utterly convinced that God is a promise-making God. That's easy enough. They were convinced that God is a promise-keeping God. So they believed Him. They loved Him. They trusted Him. They followed Him. They served Him. They were committed to His word and to His ways. In short, they were steadfast in their hope. Let me encourage you, Christian. Hope wanes when it is not nurtured by the sunshine of God's glory, grace, and gospel. Just as a plant on the windowsill will wither and die if you hide it in the closet, deprive it of sunlight, and cease to water it. Well, So, you and I's hope will wither and die if we neglect to avail ourselves of God's glory and grace and gospel. Be convinced of this. Hope fades when our Bibles collect dust, hope withers when we absent ourselves from the gathering of God's people and the means of grace that He has given to us to sustain us. Church hope and joy and assurance, it all dwindles when we refuse to lean into the promises of God. Which means this, if you lack hope, What you need is more of God. You need to cry out to Him. And I don't mean the way that you give thanks before your meal. I mean cry out to Him. You must come to develop an insatiable appetite for God's Word. You must truly long for prayer. As the Puritans would teach us, you must pray till you pray. You have to gather with God's people. And you have to build your life around the church. And you have to get outside of yourself and actually serve other people. And when you do that, Christian, you will bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, you will see your hope in God increase. Back to the Thessalonians. They were steadfast in their hope. Notice, that's why the Apostle Paul is praying for them, right? This is one of those kind of, I think, weird, funky prayers for us. Because Paul's prayer here, all he is doing is simply thanking God for them. And recognizing God's grace at work in their life and in their church. Maybe another way to grab this would be to say... You will look in vain in this prayer for supplication. Instead, it is marked by celebration. Paul is just thanking God and praising God for this church. This is also why Paul is so sure of their election, verse 4. Why? Well, because they are bearing fruit in keeping with the gospel, verse 3. So that this trilogy of gospel grace, perhaps you recognized it, faith, love, hope, this trilogy of gospel grace, it is altogether manifest in their lives and in their church. And therefore, it not only gives evidence of their election, but it redounds to the glory of God, the love of Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst. Perhaps when we gather for prayer next week, we will pray that the same would be true of our lives and our families and our church. Now if we return to that initial question that I asked, I I trust by now we have something of an answer. When we think of a local church, how do we measure faithfulness? And again, I think that this church here in Thessalonica gives us a clue. For starters, a faithful church is adored and appointed by God. That that is to say that a faithful church immerses itself into the love of God, a love that they receive from God despite their sin. At the same time, a faithful church recognizes that it is birthed from the womb of God's grace. In other words, there should be no doubt in our minds that God has elected us, not because of anything in us, but simply because God delights to be gracious to sinners. And because a faithful church is birthed from the womb of God's grace, it embraces the gospel. Or, as I've said, a faithful church trusts and treasures the gospel. Practically speaking, this means that a faithful church loves the Word of God. It means that we long to hear Scripture read and we delight to hear Scripture preached. A faithful church will have received Christ, rely on Christ, and rest in Christ. The hands are empty, refusing to offer anything or trust in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus. A faithful church will have gladly torn up their resumes knowing that in the gospel they receive all of Christ and all His good works, which is more than enough to equip them to stand right in God's sight on that day. And then this church faithful one, that is, matures and bears fruit. Or again, as we put it, a faithful church grows in grace. There is a genuine commitment to the gospel and to the God of the gospel among the congregation. The result, the inevitable result, is that a faithful church is devoted to good works. A faithful church excels in love. And a faithful church lays hold of hope. Beloved, let us seek our Father in prayer, asking in the name of Jesus Christ that His Spirit would continually form us into an ever-increasingly faithful church. Our Father, we pray for Your Spirit we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be would be pressing the truths of your word into our hearts and into our minds and into our souls even now. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would cause us to be joyful. And we pray that we would be a congregation who leans into your promises, who trusts and treasures your gospel, and that you would cause fruit to be born in our lives. We recognize that this is all dependent upon your work of grace in us. And so that is why we cry out to you now. We pray asking that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask that you would do all of these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.